everyone. My name is Diego Martinez and welcome to a new episode of Tunes, a podcast about the songs we vibe to. As you may know, this program is home to underrated music anthems, their story and longevity as told by the architects, the songwriters, producers, engineers, and the performers themselves. Joining us today is singer Carrie McDowell, who will talk about her extraordinary career, as well as her 1987 funky hit, Uh Uh-Uh, No No, Casual Sex. I could relate to it because even if I did go out dancing, you know, I... Sometimes, I mean, both, it can be both ways. So women can be raunchy too, but sometimes men. So I thought, well, that's not that bad. At least I can dance and move. And it's like telling you, don't be touching. You can look, but you know. So it wasn't a bad message, but I didn't want to be known as a goody two shoes. And then on top of it, I'm white and I'm on Motown. During its 35-year run as the hippest trip in America, syndicated TV show Soul Train attracted a wide array of singers and musicians on its legendary stage, set the trends for music, dance, and fashion, and captivated audiences that would tune in almost religiously every Saturday morning from 1971 to 2006. The late and great Don Cornelius host, creator, and former executive producer of Soul Train, saw the show not just as a vehicle for Black music, but one for Black youth and Black pride. However, he did not hesitate in making white artists part of the program from the very beginning. If we go to Soul Train's Wikipedia page, it lists up to 59 non-Black musical acts. But of course, you can't trust Wikipedia that much especially since it left out the June 13, 1987 appearance of then 24-year-old Carrie McDowell, at the time the second white female artist after Tina Marie signed to Motown Records. Remember, uh-uh, no, no. <laughs> Casual sex. sex <laughs> I got the message. At my age, it's not a real problem. Uh, Carrie McDowell, McDowell, <laughs> Her vibrant performance of the controversial Uh-Uh, No-No Casual Sex, a highlight of many a Soul Train line, was the ultimate pinnacle of a career that has seen multiple comebacks and pairings with some of the 20th century's most celebrated entertainers. Before she dazzled the Soul Train crowd and even the studio audience at The Tonight Show, Carrie was a child prodigy that was born to sing. Raised in a modest home of seven in Des Moines, Iowa, she surrounded herself with a constant rotation of sounds provided by her father and other members of her extended family. She'll be the first to admit that music has been a longtime companion, and sometimes it has helped her through some of her darkest moments. I was born in 63, 
And I come from a family of five that was raised in Des Moines, Iowa. You know, we weren't rich. I mean, we weren't poor, but we, it was seven of us in a two bedroom house and we always had music in it. If I could give you a vision of about my aunts and uncles and cousins in a little bedroom, my grandfather's, my dad's dad could play the banjo. He could play the guitar. He had a B3 in his bedroom. He could tap dance. He could play the spoons. He could play harmonica. He could play the bass. And he had all these instruments. So every Sunday growing up, we all gathered around, all the cousins, everybody on my father's side, and we would do old hymns. We would sing, sing, sing around the B3, around my grandfather. That's how we got into it. He, as a three, four, five, I can remember all the time I couldn't wait to going over there. My dad used to say, and he's been gone since 95, but he was my biggest fan. And he used to tell me all the time, Carrie, this world would be such a horrible place if we didn't have music. I mean, he would wake us up when I was four years old in the middle of the night when he would come home from the night shift with 20 new 45s, put them on, and he would wake us up at midnight. And like, we would look forward to this, all the kids, you know. And this was weird. My dad would bring home from uh, Stevie Wonder to the Carpenters, to which this is probably my favorite, Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye, that ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Yeah. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Oh, no. I was, I think, three or four when I learned that. And my dad would put me up on his hassock and say, now get into it, Carrie. And I would just, I didn't really know what he meant, but I loved what I was feeling, you know? And uh, we had this little, oh gosh, we had this little fireplace with these chains, these gold chains, and I would take it and make it like it was my microphone. And my dad put the, the, the stereo right by that to be like a little stage. So we had literally from Leon Russell to the Doobie Brothers to, uh, I mean, Motown was very big in our house. Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, The Four Tops, oh, it, it just un unbelievable. That was always a staple in our house. Carrie was only three years old when she knew she could carry a tune. She possessed a talent she could share with one of her sisters, her cousins, and her brother, who later became a drummer. Her professional debut came at the tender age of eight, after Carrie auditioned for a talent show hosted by local celebrity Bill Riley, a.k.a. Mr. State Fair. My family had put me in this competition, and it was a guy named Bill, the Bill Riley Sprouts. And he would have the little kids on this Bill Riley talent show. If you were a drummer, a dancer, a singer, and it was for a half an hour every Sunday. That's where I went and I auditioned. And then they brought me to the Iowa State Fair. And um, I won $100 and I was always, that's when I really remembered, you know, I was this little girl on this stage in at the Iowa State Fair and I thought, I thought, this is it, because all my McDowell family, you know, we have a lot of them, and we have some big mouths, but 
that was that I was eight years old on the Bill Riley Talent Sprout at the Iowa State Fair. From her lucky break at the Iowa State Fair, Carrie went on to hit the road on supper clubs and nightclubs, fronting an all-kids band called Love Train, which also included her brother on the drums. Carrie would continue to perform as a member of Love Train for many years, in tandem with her own solo career as a young singer. My sister, Julie, was my background singer. The oldest was Brian. He was the bass player. He was 17, Brian Pearson. And then Chet Skoog was on guitar. Joe Brayola was on bass or guitar. Randy Okerlund, he was on drums. Kathy Agee uh, was one of the background singers. Myself and my brother and Jeff Lambs was on keyboards. And we would do supper clubs, you know, from Chicago. We didn't even have a home. It was like just hotels for six years. But um, I loved it. I loved it. If only then we could have had like one of those big, beautiful buses, you know, because we had like six there was like six cars, 21 people, six animals. It was unreal. But it was something that I will never forget ever in my life. The word got out about the little girl with the big voice throughout the entertainment circuit in places like Las Vegas, where her agent connected Carrie with two of the era's most influential performers, comedians Dan Rowan and Dick Martin. Now, I got a better idea. We'll go in and wait for him. No, I got to go to the party. Okay, I can't go. You're invited. <laughs> the twosome was still riding the wave of the success of the TV sketch show Laugh-In when they invited nine-year-old Carrie to be the opening act for their stage show in Reno, Nevada. Rowan and Martin were awesome. They were like fathers to me. They always told me you be a little girl and you be very honest. I, I, I loved them. Yeah, they were, they were like, honestly, um, Dick reminded me a lot of my dad, Doug. He, it's kind of weird. His hair, the red in his hair, his skin coloring. And I just took to Dick Martin and Dolly just as if they were parents when my parents were gone. And I didn't even know who Rona Martin was. My, my mom, they did. I mean, I never watched laughing. I never did till I was, I think, 25, 28. But I did know that these were professional men. And like Dick and Dolly, they put a room in their house in Bel Air for me. They didn't have any children together. Dick had a son from another marriage, and his name is Carrie. So they just took me in, and my mom would let me there for weeks at a time and I fell in love with them. I fell in love with them. The association with Rowan and Martin opened doors for Carrie. The funny man introduced the child to another legendary showbiz staple, concert pianist Liberace. His elaborate performances in the Vegas Strip still move her to tears and solidified music as her life calling. I was just getting ready to turn 10 and we were in Reno and they flew me up to Reno with my mom to meet Liberace for the evening. I thought this was normal for me to do. And let me say, 
I fell in love with this man. I knew nothing about these people that I was working with, only that I thought that they must have been doing it when they were little like me. So when I met Liberace, my mother and I were having dinner and he pulled me on the stage and he said, hey, how about doing a song? And I, I was like, sure. And he sat me down and I did some over the rainbow. And that song has been very, very special in my life. was 10 years old, going on 11, and I was backstage at the International Las Vegas, the Hilton, and I could see at this one point all the musicians, how they were placed with the waterfall, that Liberace, he was the one that introduced those dancing waters with his music. It was so beautiful, but I, I gotta say that moment came to me when I was standing there watching him with his musicians. And I'm telling you, that music took me away. And I, I remember I was 10 years old and I was looking through the curtains. I would have to say that, that moment I thought, I wanna die doing this. And um, the music was just beautiful. And Liberace was so beautiful and Boers, his conductor. And oh, I can think and think and think of all of them. And I would say that moment, that time at the Las Vegas Hilton, I think, I knew I was different. You know, when you can sing a song and look out and that song is taking you to a place inside and then you open your eyes and you can see there's a smile on somebody's face or somebody is crying or laughing or hugging somebody. You know what? That tells me right there. That music is moving. God's moving, man. Through I, Music is just powerful. You have Not only did Over the Rainbow become her first record release, but it was the song she performed on the first of three appearances on The Tonight Show. Rowan and Martin were there holding Carrie's hands and giving words of encouragement as she took a bow for a seemingly never-ending standing ovation. That night, Dan and Dick told me, Carrie, this is so special for you. This is special for this Tonight Show. I remember Dan going in my ear and saying, you have a standing ovation. I wished I could remember what Dick was saying because he even bent down and said things. But you know what? They appreciate, they appreciated what they did. And they were always telling me, you be you, Carrie, you be your... And really, I wasn't a hyper child at all. I, I, I really wasn't. I loved music. So, but they always said, you just be yourself and you be that good little girl that you are. I didn't feel afraid in front of, with them, I felt I could conquer mountains. Is love that I found been the second time Rowan and Martin brought me on with Liberace, and the third time, that's why I said to mom, why, why do I have to prove that I'm a little girl? 
And she said, because this is his show. This is Mr. Carson's show. This is the, his show. You've been on the show before, but I wasn't on that night. And this is the first time I've had you are really good. Thank you. You can even see on that third show that I, I look over while I'm singing my song. I'm like looking like this guy better really be here tonight. It is so funny. And uh, he was, and he was like a gentleman to me. Literally, I walked past his dressing room. He had his socks on. He had long underwear on. He had these things that held his socks up. He had his shirt and tie on and he was fixing his tie. And I walked by, he said, hey, you are really real. And I looked at him and I went, I'm here tonight. And I just kept going. But I remember even that night, people were so kind. Straight from the Carson stage, Carrie became the opening act for showbiz icons Danny Thomas and George Burns and made several appearances on Jerry Lewis's MDA telethon and the Merv Griffin show. In addition, she would make performances on famed venues like the Copacabana, the Rainbow Room, and the Fountain Blue, all while juggling Love Train shows and a hectic schedule that rounded up to 300 dates a year. By the time she was 14, Carrie was making at least 50 grand a week performing in Vegas. But offstage, trouble loomed in her household. According to Carrie, as her parents' marriage disintegrated, her manager was wrecking havoc on her career. Their marriage wasn't good at the time wasn't good at all with his alcoholism and my mom was miserable and they would fight that that was hard um, in our home because then my older sisters would try to protect the babies from hearing anything my family loved the music but I don't really think it got off to any kind of a good start because at the time the manager my manager that came in and and Basically, then by that time, my mom and dad had divorced and this guy had come in, put his sights on how much money he could make with this little girl. And so he proceeded to go for my mom and he would tell my mom these things and they fell in love. And basically he ruined my career. That was hard because he had uh, told my mother things, but other than that, I was going and I was touring and I was doing all these performances, but that wasn't a very healthy part because of management. At the time, my sister had already gone. She had gotten another job and my brother, we weren't doing Love Train anymore. So I was headlighting my own show at the Flamingo Hilton. And that's when it all came down with, I think, people getting a hold of my mom. I think people like Rowan Martin letting my mom know what bad management that I had had. And I think it all came to a head. And unfortunately, when it did come to a head, we found out that the manager was still married. And he was telling my mom that he was going to marry her. And he was making great money. He was obviously taking my money. So it came to a full-blown stop and it got 
really twisted. And my oldest sister and her husband came and my father came and got me from Vegas and took us all home. And we just tried to have somewhat of a normal life. Carrie found the transition from the Vegas trip to the schoolyard very difficult. She was bullied, picked on, and beat up by her classmates. She also grew very resentful of her mother's involvement with her former manager. Angry and disillusioned, Carrie ran away from home at the age of 16 and moved to New York City to start all over again. I um, worked on an off-Broadway play for Showtime Television, and slowly I started to pick back up. I got a Jordache commercial, a Coca-Cola commercial, and um, started to get my confidence back up a little bit. And uh, by the time I was like 19, I turned around and I headed back home. I had gotten into counseling during the whole thing because I just, I couldn't believe, how could my mom have done this with Harold and blah, 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 blah. Even as a little girl, I had to navigate some different things. Like I had to navigate why was some older men trying to steal me? Why are we getting black roses? Why are, you know, there was a lot of things going on that a little girl, I just didn't ask. You know, not that it was just common, but I, I just, I knew what I had to do. I knew that singing was my life and I knew that that made my family happy that made other people happy. So I just think that's why I left and just continued my music. So I came back home. My mom and I mended things slowly but surely. And as the years went on, I totally understood as I got older. I think it was honestly in my late 30s that I was like, now I understand why my mom did the things she did. But before she could make amends with her mom and return to Iowa, Carrie found herself in a diverse music scene back in New York one that planted the seeds of her comeback. She teamed up with great jazz musicians and formed a fusion group called Uptown Function, where she mixed pop and R&B arrangements of songs from Al Jarreau, Diana Ross, and Steely Dan with original material. Carrie felt she had exhausted the possibilities of playing up and down the Iowa State with her band. Her mom then suggested she set her sights on the West Coast, specifically Los Angeles, in the hopes of getting heard and landing a record deal. It didn't take long before Carrie's aspirations became a reality. I was taking care of this one apartment building and this girl gave me her number and she said, my gosh, I've been listening to you sing and I hear you around the apartments. And I had worked there, you know, to get my rent and, you know, get people into this place. And, and I took her the number and about several weeks later, I called the number on this little piece of paper that she had given me. And I trusted her because she played percussions. So I picked up the number, called it, and it was Willie Hutch, Willie Hutchinson. The late Willie Hutch had been a music industry player since the early 60s and already made a name for himself as a writer, producer, and arranger for the Fifth Dimension. In 1969, 
He had done two albums with RCA before he was asked by Motown Records producer Hall Davis to write lyrics for a song by a new group the label had signed called the Jackson Five. The song was their fourth consecutive number one single, I'll Be There. Throughout the decade, Hutch penned songs for other Motown legends like Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, and Marvin Gaye, and made some albums of his own as well. After briefly exiting the label in the late 70s, Willie had returned in the early 80s, scoring several hits in the club charts and working with hopeful singers like Carrie. We made an appointment. I came up there and I had auditioned with another white girl and three black girls. He was auditioning a band for Motown and they wanted to call it Starcrossed. So I went up there and did the audition and I got ready to leave. And he said, can I give you a call later on? And I said, sure. So the next day he called and he said, I would really love to produce you. And I said, great. So I got the job, this gig with these girls. And he said, no, actually you're going to be the lead and all the girls are going to be your background singers. So I was like, oh, okay. And that's how it all came to be. And two weeks later, I'm working with Willie Hutchinson in Chatsworth, California. And I'm down in Fullerton. That's in Orange County. So I'm driving thinking, what is this going to be? And I loved his voice on the phone. You know, I loved how kind he was and walked into a studio and the rest is history. And walked in, here this guy comes in and I was waiting. Willie had gone to the restroom and I came back into the sound room and was waiting there. And this little guy comes in with this gym suit, these beautiful glasses and the smile that could light up the whole world. And I'm like, well, who the heck are you? You know, and I'm looking right at him. And he goes, I'm Mr. Gordy. And he sat right down next to me. And I thought, wow, this is going to be wonderful. I fell in love that day. I, I think God's at his hand on me with some beautiful people in my life because I could not believe that this was really happening because I all I could think of was ain't nothing like the real thing baby and I, I just wanted to start singing that in front of him you know Barry Gordy then president and chairman of Motown Records decided to take Carrie under his wings and personally manage her career. He even welcomed Carrie into his own house in Bel Air and cared for her like a daughter. Gordy was instrumental in navigating racial bias radio programmers had on Carrie as one of only two white women signed to a Black-owned record label. I adore Barry Gordy. I love it when I speak to him. I love it when I can go up to the house and sit with him and feel him and just thank him for what he's given this world. I know that sounds really crazy, but when I go up there, I like pray that let me just pour love from everybody that I can think of onto this man. And I love him. I get so emotional. So, you know, not only did he take on a girl from a 
farm town. But, you know, he believed in me. I had challenges because I was white. He knew that. Some radio stations we would walk in and they would like literally treat me horrible. They would say like, you're white. And I remember Diane Martin was one of Barry Gordy's assistants who he signed her to myself. She would say, yeah, like hell, she's white. She's white. Yes, the girl can sing. And I mean, it was, there was a time going on there where I don't think if it wasn't for Mr. Gordy telling me, you do what God gave you, just what God gave you to do. It doesn't make any difference because some people are not going to like you. Even people up at that company did not like me because I was white. He always would tell me, you bring it in and you do what God gave you to do and you kill it. I I just, it just meant the world to me. Back in the studio, Willie Hutch worked with Carrie to bring out the best of her in the recordings they did together for her self-titled Motown debut. Amidst of soft ballads and funk dance experiments that suited her versatile voice. Among the songs he wrote for the record, was one called simply Casual Sets, a title that raised a few eyebrows by 1987 standards. To this day, Carrie doesn't even know how the song came to be, but she knows she wouldn't have chosen it as the first single. There were other songs that I know, like, you know, uh, Secret Fire or you know, the other ones, uh, When a Woman Loves a Man. But I really think they had their sights set on that to see if maybe even I could challenge at a, I don't know. That would not have been my first. And Willie knew. Willie knew because I said, I don't want that to be the first release. So, and for the life of me, I can't honestly remember what he even said. Probably that's why I just trusted them. Sorry about the changes that I'm could relate to it because even if I did go out dancing, you know, I sometimes I mean both it can be both ways. So women can be raunchy too, but sometimes men. So I thought, well, that's not that bad. At least I can dance and move. And it's like telling you, don't be touching. You can look, but you know, so it wasn't a bad message, but I didn't want to be known as a goody two-shoes. And then on top of it, I'm white and I'm on Motown. In today's world, a song like Casual Sets, later renamed Uh Uh No No Casual Sets for its single release, could be deemed dated and even preachy because of its lyrical message. But back in 1987, it was a part of a larger conversation society was having. By that year, more than 40,000 Americans had died from a disease discovered only six years before, and that was originally thought of attacking gay males. I think the biggest misconception is that people still think that you can pick up AIDS somehow or other by non-sexual casual contact. And I think the thing that bothers most people is the fact that maybe mosquitoes carry the virus. And I would like to assure everybody right now that that is not possible and it is not true. It took that long until then-U.S. President Ronald Reagan was finally able to utter the words AIDS, 
calling it public enemy number one. Those of us in government can educate our citizens about the dangers. We can encourage safe behavior. We can test to determine how widespread the virus is. We can do any number of things, but only medical science can ever truly defeat AIDS. With the virus spreading all over the globe and affecting multiple communities, and grassroots groups like ACT UP raising awareness, preventive measures and conservative attitudes towards sets started to take hold among the public. And that also included the art and music world. Let's Many songs, like Janet Jackson's Let's Wait a While, Jermaine Stewart's We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off, and Gwen Guthrie's Can't Love You Tonight, directly addressed messages of abstinence and personal opinions from songwriters about thinking before taking action on any kind of potentially risky sexual activity. Hey, love tonight, love is no longer free. Price is high. Uh-uh, no-no casual sets fell right on time with that type of message. And even Carrie believes AIDS might have been on Willie Hutch's mind when he wrote the track. Despite all efforts to push it, including a dancier remix by Bruce Forrest, Uh-uh, no-no only peaked at number 38 on Billboard's Hot Dance Chart and number 65 on R&B. It didn't bother me because when I got out there, it was like, hello, folks. I loved what I did. They didn't push on no, no casual sex like it could have been pushed. At the time, Motown was going to go through a change. And unfortunately, I got caught up in the whole new buyers of Motown. So all I can say is going and doing what I did with Gregory Gordy. He was my tour manager at the time. That was Barry Gordy's nephew. So we would go to New York. They loved uh-uh, no, no casual sex. People would go nuts for the beat. So I thought, you know, you can't deny that when people are dancing to this. And Gregory said, why? This is a slamming record. He said, just get over the words. You're not doing anything anyway. I said, I, I just can't believe people are, they're accepting. What I saw is they, they were kind everywhere. Besides the clubs, Carrie could also feel right at home with kind folks at the Soul Train and American Bandstand TV studios, where she engaged audiences throughout her performances. It blew my mind that I was actually standing in front of Don Cornelius, and he was the kindest, sweetest, everything that I had ever heard of him through the years. And I was young. I was like 22, 20. It was right in the beginning. And Mr. Gordy and Mr. Cornelius, they were very good friends. So Barry goes, give him a run for his money, you know, because because you hear him say, I can't even move parts of me. So, you know, he said something so silly. I was like, oh. Well, well Mr. McDowell, that was uh, quite a performance. Yeah. Thank you. Very funky and uh, very pretty at the same time. Just the sweetest man. 
people would say, oh, you met Don Cornelius, finally, oh, and he was wonderful to me, just like Dick Clark. Oh, I love that Dick Clark. He had me on singing, uh-uh, no, no, casual sex. And I thought if Dick Clark is okay with this, because he was like, like all American, you know what I mean? And and Don Cornelius, he accepted me and I was this little white girl, he didn't mind. I'll tell you what, to get to do what I got to do and to experience, it was wonderful. And to see people dancing to my song on Soul Train, it blew me away, really. Under Barry Gordy's guidance, Carrie decided not to work with Motown's incoming executives who already planned a second LP for her and announced she'd be leaving the label. By then, she had become romantically involved with guitarist Michael Hodge, and the two married in 1989. In the early 90s, they relocated to Nashville and started work as contemporary Christian duo Two Hearts. They had a child together named Gabriel and recorded two albums, 1992's Stand Your Ground and 1993's Give Them the Word before their divorce three decades later. These days, Carrie McDowell is keeping busy with many projects in the pipeline. She's open to making new songs and dabbling in different genres together with talented musicians that played a part in her last EP, 2013's Talk About the Girl. She's also working on an autobiography where she'll go more in depth about her amazing life story. 35 years after the release of Uh Uh No No Casual Sets, Carrie is still bewildered that she's reconnecting with her peers and touching listeners that weren't even born when she made her first and only Motown album. She's been moving through life's obstacles by the power of music, the one thing in her heart since she was a child. For all we know, we might be bracing ourselves for yet another Carrie McDowell comeback. Sometimes I get giggly because it feels like somebody is pumping my heart up so big with love. I'm almost shocked. I I feel very honored. And it's funny, I don't, I'm ready for whatever happens. And I'm, I just, I'm ready to do whatever it's gonna take. And I, I think it's beautiful because they're younger now appreciating that. I'm meeting some beautiful kids that I, I feel that I'll know till the day I go away. So that is beautiful. And I'm getting to meet some other artists that were on my level back then that I didn't get to meet. And talking to them and hearing their journey, some of them being older than myself, I love that. And I think with some new people bringing this to the surface, it's just, it's exciting and it's hopeful. And I got to tell you that this is what my heart needed, you know, and if I can give it back, give back even the love that you saw in me, that's just how I am. I really, I do love what I do. I was honored to be on Motown and I was honored to get this littlest thing that I, the one song that I got to do, I felt huge and I felt loved. If I get another chance to get out, to go singing, well, then this was all worth it. It really was. 
Many thanks to Carrie McDowell for her contributions to this podcast episode. And a massive shout out to Ant and Ray for your love and support. And of course, thanks to all of you for tuning in. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly, Diego Martinez. Our executive producer is Nicholas Nick Fresh Puzo. And our audio engineer is Adam Fogel. Follow Tunes all over social media. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TunesPod. That is C-H-O-O-N-S-P-O-D. And become part of our community on Patreon, where you can find early access to our content, after-show discussions, and much more, starting at $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash TunesPod. Don't forget to rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back with another exploration on an underappreciated tune on the next episode of Tunes.